0: Well, good afternoon. It's always encouraging when people as far away as Elliot Lake <laughs> attend your services. It's good to see some old friends. Not that you're old, it's just it's good to see you. So Wyatt keeps asking me, how long are you going to be, Papa? So I, I said probably 40 minutes. So if I'm longer than 40 minutes, you might see Wyatt up and leave, so he... He might be done before I'm done. And, you know, one thing I've noticed about my grandkids, well, one thing I've noticed is I use them a lot in my sermons. But I've noticed that they like to dress up in costumes. You know, they like to get into our closet and get those costumes out. They like to dress up. But I've also noticed something about their costumes. They never dress up as plumbers or electrical engineers. Sorry, Jeff. And they certainly don't dress up as tax preparers. What do they dress up at? They want to be superheroes. Right? They want to have superpowers. But we all know this is not reality. You might want to cover your ears, uh, Wyatt, Emmett. But superheroes do not exist. And the Bible never portrays anyone as a superhero. You know, why is that? It's because the Bible deals with real life and real people. You know, Scripture never shies away from uh, tough questions or difficult subjects. Psalm 73 that we're going to look at this afternoon was written by Asaph, a man of faith. A man of faith, but he was doubting God. You know, can we use those two words in the same sentence, you know? Doubt and faith, aren't they mutually exclusive ideas? And yet, Scripture has a whole long list of godly men and women who doubted. You know, I think of right in the beginning, Adam and Eve. You know, they doubted God. They believed the lie. What about Abraham? You know, he, he he doubted God. You know, he can't deliver this child of promise. Sarah as well. What about Job, you know, righteous Job? You know, he really, he doubted that, you know, are you their God? He thought God had abandoned him. Even Jeremiah, you know, he doubted God's call on his life. His, his ministry seemed so difficult and unfruitful. Even Elijah had the same doubts. And then the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist, by the way. He actually said, are you the Messiah? He doubted whether Christ was the Messiah. Are you the one? And, of course, poor old doubting Thomas, right? He has to wear that label for all church history. How about Habakkuk? He he doubted. He doubted the holiness of God. You know, how can God use the Babylonians? And then in Matthew 28, the 11 disciples are gathered on, on the mount in Galilee, where they were told to gather. And Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is standing right in front of them. And then the scripture records something very amazing. It says, But some doubted. So when it comes to telling the story of people, the Bible is very honest, isn't it? It's very open and transparent. There's no sugarcoating in the Word of God, you know, there's no hiding people's faults. The Bible tells it like it is. There's no embellishing successes, but there's no denying failures. You know, the Bible calls believers saints, doesn't he? But the Bible never lets us forget we're sinners. The Bible deals with reality, not make-believe. And Scripture is not embarrassed to address the weaknesses of Believers even their doubts. So I would ask you this afternoon, aren't you glad there are no superheroes in the Bible? You know, larger-than-life people that we could never, ever measure up to. Even the book of James says Elijah was a man just like us. So scripture is not foreign. It's not some abstract book that has no relevance, no. We can relate, we can identify, we can say, hey, that's me. That's what I'm struggling with. And I think it's important to distinguish the difference between doubt and unbelief. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about doubt and unbelief. Doubt comes from a struggling mind. Well, unbelief comes from a stubborn will that refuses surrender to God. I'm glad Todd got all my quotes in there. I gave this message to him last night, I think, really late. Appreciate the ministry back there, guys. Probably the best way to illustrate is two New Testament examples of the difference between doubt and unbelief. The scribes and Pharisees, you remember that group? They're prime examples of unbelief. You know, they asked many questions of Jesus. You know, it's not because they wanted their answers really questioned. You know, they weren't trying to clear up some doubt in their mind. They had a much more sinister motive. They were trying to gather evidence to condemn Jesus. Their unbelieving heart says, I do not believe And I will not believe. But Nicodemus, who himself was a Pharisee, in John 3, we see him coming to Jesus at night. And I believe that here is a man who's honestly struggling with doubt. Who is this Jesus? There's evidence later on in the book of John that Nicodemus does come to saving faith in Christ. And people may even come to you with questions. And you wonder, you know, are they, are they really struggling? Are they doubting? Are they, are they trying to really determine from you what your faith is all about? Or are they just trying to poke holes, gather information they can use against you? So clearly, there's this, a distinction between doubt and unbelief. So if we look at Psalm 73, it's a great lesson for us, I think. We're going to see what this psalmist does with his doubt. And so in verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So here we have a very firm doctrinal statement. Asaph believes God, and he believes God is good. And he's right. But there's a problem It's how God administers his goodness in the world that becomes his tripping point, his point of doubt. It seems that life, at least how Asaph sees it, doesn't match his theology. You know, sometimes we have a difficulty taking what we learn in the classroom into the real world. You know, we we have to know the truth about God, but we also have to know how how to apply it correctly in the world. And in verse 2, we see a very humble confession of the psalmist. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. This must have been a very difficult verse for him to write. I mean, it's not easy to admit our weaknesses, is it? To expose ourselves, to open up, and people will see our doubt. He states he's about to stumble or slip. And this is obviously not physically. It's spiritually. He has doubts about God. And why is he stumbling? The next verse tells us, verse three, for four. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why did he almost stumble? He was envious of sinners, and he saw the wicked prospering. Verse 4 begins with the word for, F-O-R. Asaph starts making his case here. And these, these next few verses, we're going to see his impression of the ungodly. In verse 4, for... They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. In verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And finally, in verse 12, we have the word, behold. These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 12 is really Asaph's commentary is ending. This is his conclusion, his summary. He says, the ungodly live a life of ease and prosperity, and suffer no hardship due to their sin. They are blessed by God, even though they blaspheme God. They're not ashamed of their sin. They actually celebrate it, and they prosper. This is how Asaph sees life. And then in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So these words, cleansing, washing, the psalmist says that in contrast to the wicked, he is living a godly life. He is serving God. But he says it is in vain. He says there's no benefit. There's no benefit to serving God. Why be faithful? Why not join the ranks of the ungodly? You know, they seem to have it better off. The ungodly are living the good life. And in verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Problems and difficulties have been the life of Asaph. You know, all day, every morning. Sounds like whining, doesn't it? It's doing some complaining here. He says, What do I get for serving God? In verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I think, I think this is a very important verse. You know, we need to be very careful how we express our doubts. You know, Asaph didn't go public with this inner turmoil. He didn't post this on social media for all to read. Because less than mature believers may not receive his doubt so well. You know, we don't want to destroy the faith of others because we know that doubt and bitterness and cynicism, these are very infectious, aren't they? But of course, this doesn't mean we should keep all of this bottled up inside us. You know, we do need to seek the counsel of a mature believer. Confide in them. And in verse 16, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. What was it that Asaph was trying to understand? He was trying to reconcile what he saw. He saw the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And God wasn't doing anything about it. Where was the goodness of God? And he says, When I thought. Asaph was trying to resolve his doubt with human reasoning. You know, Asaph thought, You know, God, you're not acting correctly, you're not acting according to my theology. Because in Asaph's theology, a good God would reward the godly and punish the wicked. You know, this is is really dangerous ground that he's on, isn't it? When you think about it, you know, he begins to fashion God in his own likeness. You know, this is the essence of idolatry, creating our own gods. I mean, how many times have you heard people say to you, well, my God is not like that. Oh, your God. You know, we create our own understanding of what God should be like or how he should be acting. And then we come to the turning point. I hope you see this. This is the turning point in the whole psalm, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So doubt prompts a response it will either send us away from God or to God. And Asaph chose the right path to God. He went into the sanctuary of God. I think this is a euphemism for seeking God. You know, it speaks of a returning to God in his word, to return to true worship, a drawing close to God. He's moving toward God to solve this dilemma, his doubts. So Asaph went into the sanctuary, and it was not until he did this that he began to understand. He shed his own wisdom for God's wisdom. This is like being lost in the woods. You know, he he need to get reoriented, and we need a compass to do that. What's true north? Then I understood their end. Who's their end? Well, it's the wicked. And in the next three verses, we have a description of what their end is the wicked's end. Verse 18 says, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. So, although Asaph thought he was slipping, it was actually the wicked who are slipping. They are the ones on fall, on, that are falling and being cast down. They are the ones that have no sure foundation. It reminds us of why Jesus tells us not to build houses on sand. Verse 19 says, How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In a moment. You know, Scripture paints for us a very, very patient God. But it also tells us that when judgment comes from God, it comes very quickly, very swift. Even verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Dreams end abruptly. And this further develops the idea that God acts quickly in judgment. In verses 21 and 22, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. After the psalmist goes into the sanctuary, he begins to see his own heart. This is what happens when we, when we go to God. We see God. but We also see us very clearly. How foolish and ignorant his thinking was. He was thinking like a beast. You know, that's the lowest form of thinking possible, very instinctive. Asaph thought the problem originated with God. You know, God was not acting according to his standards. There was a problem that needed fixing. You know, when our car is broken down, say it won't start, we have it towed to the mechanic, he'll start diagnosing with what we call troubleshooting. You know, you test the battery, you test the starter. You know, through this process of elimination, we, we come to realize what the source of the problem is. But when it comes to spiritual troubleshooting, I can tell you this the problem is never going to originate with God. Our thinking is not right, the problem is with us. And in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Nevertheless. You know, in spite of Asaph's doubts, his foolish thinking, his frustrations with God, God never left him. You know, our doubt never isolates us from God. We may have doubts about God, but God never doubts us. Isn't that amazing? You know, I think of Job. In all his suffering, it was perhaps the thought that God had left him that was the greatest source of suffering for him. His greatest anguish, God had left him. But Job learned that even though God didn't deliver him from all his trials, God never, ever left him. God never leaves us, even in times of doubt. I have a quote here from R.W. Pink. This is from his book, Gleanings in the Godhead. The whole of my life stood open to God's view. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet he fixed his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I mean, this is great news, isn't it? This is great news for us. This Psalm 73 should be very encouraging for anyone who is struggling with doubt. And in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. How does God guide us? With his counsel, with his word. This is how we navigate life. God is with us. He's holding our hand. He's leading us with his word. And at the end of the journey, he's there personally to welcome us home. You know, can you find a more encouraging verse? We should never feel alone or abandoned by God in times of doubt. And then we have verse 25. I call this my fridge-worthy verse. You know, this is one you want to post. This is the one that you want to frame and hang. You want to have it in your house because it is so beautiful, isn't it? Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Wow. So here is a trade that Asaph is not willing to make. He will take God above everything else. Because he's really taking inventory here. What do I have? Instead of focusing on what he doesn't have, you know, earthly riches and comfort. He considers what he does have. He has God. He has the greatest possession you could ever have. Reminds me of that hymn we sing, Precious Name. this, This verse here. Hope of heaven, or hope of earth, and joy of heaven. And in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This idea of, uh, this word portion here has the idea of inheritance. And according to Matthew 6, earthly inheritances get rusty and moth-eaten, if not stolen first. But God's inheritance is certain and eternal. Verse 27, For behold, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. So here the psalmist is reminded of the fate of the wicked. You know, he should have been mourning over their sin, not envying their success. I like what Matthew Henry says here. Even in the height of their prosperity, they were rather to be pitied than envied for they were but ripening for ruin. And the last verse. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, in these last verses in this psalm, there's a strong emphasis on fellowship, a nearness, a closeness to God. God is continually with him, guiding him, holding his hand, receiving him. We see a change here in the psalmist, don't we? And then finally he says that I may tell of your works. You know, Asaph goes from one who doubts God to now one who is praising God. It's, it's, it's quite a transformation, isn't it? So why did Asaph doubt God's goodness? I'm going to list a few reasons here. They're not exhaustive. But first of all, Asaph had a faulty understanding of God's goodness. You know, he says, if God was truly good, I would be healthy and wealthy. You know, Asaph thought that God administered his goodness through financial prosperity and an easy life. I think he had listened to one too many sermons from Joel Osteen. You know, Scripture does have a lot to say about money. You know, and and many of the references in Scripture have this red flag around them, this warning. Uh, Those of you who are older, I didn't say old, older, uh, or at least as old as me, you may remember a show from the 1960s called Lost in Space. It was about the adventures of this family, going through space. And if you remember back in the days of black and white, you know, special effects then were really, really lame. You know, this family had this crazy robot. It looked like a, a shop vac with uh, magnets for arms, you know. And every time there was danger, he would come out and he'd light up and his arms would flail and he'd say, warning. Warning. Remember that? Warning, Will Robinson. Well, that's the feel I get when I read about money and wealth mentioned in Scripture. There always seems to be a warning around it. You know, money tends to draw us away from God, not closer. Jesus said how hard it was for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. You couldn't serve both God and money. And of course, it's the love of money. It's the root of all evil. It can lead to pride and self-dependence, arrogance. So maybe not having wealth was the best thing for Asaph. Maybe it was actually God being good to him. But the psalmist never considered that option. The same with suffering. Suffering. You know, he thought all suffering was bad. You know, a good God would not allow suffering. Yet we know from scriptures that suffering tends to draw us closer to God. It humbles us. It makes us dependent. It makes us uh, uh, trusting. You know, Paul's thorn in the flesh. It was given him to him to keep him humble. You know, pride could have destroyed Paul's ministry. So Asaph's thinking here is very childlike, isn't it? We think we know what's best for us. In fact, this is why James says our prayers go unanswered. We ask amiss. We ask wrongly, inappropriately. It's like the young child who who asked to play with the sharp knives in the kitchen. You know, the wise, loving, good parent would never grant such a request, would they? Do we really trust God? Do we believe he always acts in our best interest? Is God good? You know, the original temptation in Eden, it was designed to promote doubt. Oh, you can't eat of all the trees, can you? What about that tree in the middle? Why can't you eat that one or eat of it? You know, is God withholding something good from you? Is God truly good? And here Asaph thinks God is not good because he's withholding wealth from him. So he he had a faulty definition of God's goodness. He also believed he deserved God's goodness. Asaph felt that due to his service to God, that God owed him something. He deserved it. You know, once our thinking goes down this path of entitlement, we will never understand the goodness of God. The psalmist says, God, give me what I deserve. Wow. (laughs) That's a dangerous request, isn't it? Do we understand what we're asking when we say that? God, give me what I deserve. You know what we truly deserve from God? You know, and I believe this, this is the fundamental issue. This is the root of the problem. Why people, believers and unbelievers, struggle with the goodness of God. God should be good to them. God should bless them because they're really not that bad. They deserve it. We see in Psalm 73, there's some what we call dominant pronouns. It begins with they. He says, they have no pangs until death. They are not in trouble. They scoff. They being the wicked. And then it switches to the the pronoun I. I being Asaph. I have kept my heart clean. I have been stricken. You know, we see this contrast between the two that the psalmist sets up. It has the feel of the Pharisee looking down with contempt on the publican. So Asaph was concerned how God was dealing with the wicked all around him, but he failed to see the wickedness in his own heart. He had a lofty view of his own goodness. He deserved better treatment from God. So Asaph had a faulty definition of the goodness of God. He thought he was entitled to God's goodness. And Asaph thought he had God all figured out. Asaph believed that God rewarded the godly and punished the wicked. This is known as the retribution principle. And it's the same argument that Job's three friends slash counselors tried to counsel Job with. You know, they, they said, Job, that we know this is how God works. You know, he, he rewards the godly and punishes the wicked. Therefore, Job, you are suffering because you are a sinner. Repent and all will be restored. I mean, that's, that's their counsel in a nutshell. That's 30 chapters of the book of Job. Their theology did not allow for any other explanation for Job's suffering. It was rigid, unmovable. They thought, or the thought, that perhaps God's ways are much more complex never entered their mind. They passed judgment on things beyond their understanding. You know, look at these these verses here, Romans 11.3. I quoted it from the NIV, I just like the way how they phrased it. Oh, the depths of the riches and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Psalm 92, 5, how great are your works, O Lord, how deep are your thoughts. But Asaph, just like Job's counselors, they presume to have God all figured out. You know, let's put God in a box and put a nice bow on it, just neat and tidy theology this is who God is, this is how he works, case closed. And finally, Asaph had a short-term view of the goodness of God. You know, Asaph limited God's goodness to this life only. His myopic view blurred his theology. God works on a different timetable than us. You know, God had to show Asaph the big picture. You know, let me show you what the end result of the wicked is. You know, let me show you the judgment that awaits the wicked. Do you still want to be like the wicked, Asaph? You know, it was the same problem that the preacher in Ecclesiastes had. He tried to figure out the meaning of life. In this life only. Remember the phrase, under the sun. You see that all through the book. Life under the sun. There are injustices in this life, no doubt. We see it every day. We see evil prospering and the wicked getting away with their sin. But there is a day of reckoning that's coming. Wrongs will be righted. But that day is not here yet. And we can't let short-term thinking skew our theology. When you think of the goodness of God and how God works in our life, the goodness of God is at work in our lives with much loftier goals than to make us healthy and wealthy in the here and now. So what do we learn from Asaph? Well, we learn that he tried to solve the problem on his own. You know, this problem of the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, you know, he tried to do this with his own intelligence only. And we'll never come to the proper conclusion on our own. We need God's word. You know, human psychology, human reasoning, human logic, they're always going to come up short. We need to see life as God sees it. And what about these struggles? Are they worth it? You know, all these struggles of doubt and unbelief. Yes, absolutely. It's worth it. The struggles are worth it. You know, in fact, not doing anything about your doubt is even worse, isn't it? You know, untreated doubt is like untreated cancer. One doubt will spread to another doubt, and finally you get to the point where you don't believe anything. So we need to deal with our doubts, and the struggle is worth it. You know, when do we really learn about ourselves? You know, when do we learn about ourselves, and when do we learn about who God is? Is it on the mountaintops or in the valleys? Is it not through our struggles? with doubt, our trials, our difficulties. Isn't that when we learn the most? It's like God is saying, you know, now that I've got your attention, let me teach you something. You know, I I wish it was some other way. But we do learn the best in the school of adversity, don't we? It seems that these struggles are the means that God uses to change our hearts. Consider Job, you know, all the suffering he endured, all the struggles with faith. And then, what seems to be the climax of the book in verse 42 5, Job says this I heard about you, that is God, I heard about you with my ears, but now my eye sees you. You know, Job's changed. Job has grown, he sees God more clearly. He gained more insight about God through it all. What about Habakkuk? In chapter 1, we see a Habakkuk complaining to God. You know, why aren't you doing something about the sin in Judah? You know, why are you bringing the Babylonians? But in chapter 3, we see a different man. A prophet who's come through his struggle of doubt to a place where he understands that God is holy and that everything he does is just, we see a mature prophet who's willing to live by his faith. And even in this psalm, Psalm 73, we see Asaph's focus has radically changed. He's no longer focused on self, but on God. He stopped looking at the wickedness around him and saw the wickedness in his own heart. He saw the need for God's grace and mercy. He saw that God was his greatest possession in this life and in the one to come. He was content with what God brought or didn't bring into his life. God truly was good. You know, I think it's noteworthy that Job, Habakkuk, Asaph, they all grew in their understanding of God, even though God never answered their questions. You know, Job was never told why he suffered. Habakkuk was never told why God used the Babylonians. And Asaph was never told why the the wicked prospered. You find that interesting? They grew in spite of not having their doubt really answered. Their doubts were resolved, not through information, but through a person. It was God himself. When they came to the end of all their struggle, they realized God himself is enough. They knew that God was with them, and they knew God could be trusted. And that was ultimately all that really mattered. You know, and the same goes for us. We will not have every question answered. We're not going to have every mystery solved and every doubt removed. We will not always know the reason why things happen in this life. Why things happen to us. And are we okay? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with not knowing? And I think this is where God comes along and asks, am I enough? Will you trust me? And will you live by faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the psalmist says that he almost stumbled. He nearly slipped. And Lord, we're so thankful that you keep us, as we just sang, you hold us fast. You know our weakness, our struggles, and as you kept Asaph from completely falling, so you will keep us. As you prayed that Peter may not be sifted by Satan, so too you will intercede for us. Lord, that is such an encouragement to know that you are for us, that you are with us. And Lord, I pray that this song would be a reminder this afternoon, maybe an encouragement, maybe a challenge. We see here the psalmist who struggled with your goodness. We see a godly man that took his eyes off you. But when he went into your presence, when he sought you, he saw life from your perspective. And this changed everything. Lord, help us. Help us keep our focus on you and your word. So stir our hearts with these truths, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.